If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. I'm only the bloody bumblebee rescuer. I'm armed with a pot of honey. I have a little teaspoon. Am I a bumblebee whisperer? Listen, you just have to ask them. <laughs> Well, you ask and we deliver. That's the way it works here at the Wellbeing Lab. Yoo-hoo! People have written in and asked about chronic pain. So Amy tracked down Dr. Alan Fires, And we're going to talk about living with chronic pain. Amazing subject and quite emotional. So have a listen and let us know what you think. I think he's a wonderful man. I'm Alan Fires. I'm a consultant in pain medicine at University College London Hospital. I'm also the media representative of the British Pain Society, which is a society essentially that represents people with chronic pain in the UK. What a fascinating area to work in, of which I know very little. How did you get into this area of work? Well, that's a long story. So I actually came into medicine wanting to be a psychiatrist when I was very young, based on uh, watching Ricky Lake and wanting to be the resident psychiatrist there. But when I started doing clinical medicine, I found it really quite grueling. It was very far removed from the glamorous image I had in mind. So I went through a variety of different specialities trying to find my way. I did internal medicine. I did some cardiology. I went abroad. I did some palliative care. I came back. I did anesthetics. And then I took some time out and did public health. And during that time out, I met somebody who was doing pain, chronic pain, and he was describing what he did. Um, and he was talking to me and saying that he felt that I would be suited for it. And actually, when I think about that history of things, psychiatry, psychology, medicine, anesthetics, it's a perfect culmination of those three things because there is so much psychology in pain. There is so much medicine, so there is some thinking about what is the actual cause of this, what is, is there something that we're missing? And then there's an anaesthetic side, which is about trying to take the pain away, and also some procedural elements that, you know, all these three things came into harmony and it felt actually maybe that chronic pain was the right speciality for me. That makes sense to me. And how would you define chronic pain? There is a literal definition of chronic pain, uh, and it's temporal, so it's based on the amount of time that you've had that pain for, irrespective of what the cause is. So if you've had pain for more than three months, your pain is considered to be chronic. And there's a bit of a philosophical reason behind that. In essence, the idea is that pain in general is something that's helpful for us. Evolutionarily, it's helpful for us. So it, it allows us to survive. So it tells us that something is wrong, usually. So if you imagine a prehistoric person walking through the forest and stepping on something sharp, 
pain is the body's way of identifying that injury has happened and diverting attention away from whatever it is that person was doing to look and find the cause of it and heal. And the idea behind stopping is to allow your body to heal. But if you've still got that message going to your brain at a three-month time frame, really there's no more healing the body can do at three months, we think. So at that point, that message, while it might be coming legitimately from your foot, is no longer serving the same function it was. That protective function is no longer there because there is no more healing that can take place. And actually, at this point, even from a prehistoric person's perspective, it would be more appropriate for that person to carry on walking irrespective of the pain or irrespective of the thorn that was in their foot three months ago. So that's the concept of chronic pain is that actually something that is ostensibly helpful, something that's ostensibly necessary for survival at a certain point loses that utility and becomes dysfunctional if you like okay wow that's really see you're already blowing my mind that's really interesting so hearing you am i right in saying that pain provides a necessary you know survival mechanism and is linked very much for a maximum of three months to recovery and healing but then after that the pain is still going but there's sort of no more healing to be done for whatever that is so does that mean like a sort of the pain alarm or whatever is just still running. Exactly. I mean, that's, this is crudely speaking, of course, you know, not everything falls into, into these categories. There are people, for example, uh, let's take something like inflammatory arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. Those are people who continue to have damage uh, in joints over a long period of time. So they, they're getting pain for more than three months because there's ongoing damage. But most of the pain I see in our pain clinics, the damage has occurred a long time ago. And there isn't really strong evidence to say there's ongoing injury, but that message is there. As you say, the alarm bell is still going off, even though it's a sort of pointless alarm bell, if you like, from an evolutionary perspective. But pain is absolutely normal acute pain, if you like. The non-chronic pain is, is necessary. If you took out the genes from people for feeling pain, and some people are naturally born without those genes, they have a natural genetic insensitivity to feeling pain. And, and actually, you'd think that would be wonderful, you could do wonderful things, but those people are invariably prone to various forms of injury because they twist their arms and they put their hands on hot plates and, and don't realize it. And so it is important to embrace that very philosophical idea of pain, which is this really protective sensation that can become dysfunctional in a subset of people. And what's going on in the body to create a sensation of pain? What's being released? So the pain pathway basically connects the outside world to the brain. So let's go back to our example of a prehistoric person walking through the forest and they step on something sharp, let's say it is a thorn. So the thorn causes damage in the foot and the damage causes breakdown of cells, literally breakdown of cells, you know, it cuts through cells and those cells leak the contents that are inside them. And that's essentially the principle of inflammation. So the leakage of contents from the cells then draws and attracts other components in the blood that essentially form that inflammatory soup around the skin where the injury has happened. So as a result, once there's enough chemicals, an electrical signal is initiated in the foot that goes to the spinal cord where it meets another nerve and then a message has gone to the brain. Now, interestingly, that's not where it stops. So that's at the point where the brain perceives something's going on in the foot, right? But the brain needs to put it into context. It needs to say, hold on, what, what is the meaning of this? Should I be worried about this? You know, because the brain is also receiving messages of just walking and leaves and all those other things. So it needs to sort of separate all of these other things out. It then sends a message back to the spine to decide how magnified that message should be. So for example, if that prehistoric person 
just steps on a thorn, then the message back to the spine will be, okay, this is painful, I should stop. I want to carry on feeling this sensation as long as that thorn is there. But if that prehistoric person was being chased by a wild animal, by a wild boar, the inflammation would still happen, the injury would still happen, the message would still happen in that first nerve, it would still connect to the spinal cord, it would still come to the brain, the perception of pain would be there, but a message would go back to the spinal cord to say, I haven't got time for this right now, I have greater priorities, I haven't got time to stop and inspect my foot, I need to carry on running, so I don't want to know anything about what is happening in the foot right now, and it blocks out that pain. And that's the sort of the idea behind, well, that's one of the benefits of that having that, that gate, if you like, at the spinal cord, is you can dull down that message, or in some cases, it might be appropriate for the brain to amplify that message. So let's say the day before that prehistoric person had had a conversation with their friends about slithery things in, in the forest that bite you and then make your leg go blue and you could potentially die. Actually, when that person walks and steps on something sharp, the message gets to the brain and the context that brain thinks of says, oh, hold on a minute, wasn't there something sharp that could actually kill me? Even if there is a wild animal in the forest, maybe I should really take a few minutes and look down. And so the message back to the spinal cord would be to make this pain very, very painful. So it distracts me from everything else that's there. So under very normal circumstances, there is the scope for the brain to modulate how we feel the pain signals coming from wherever the injury is happening. That's even under normal circumstances, which shows you the impressive power the brain has in actually controlling and modulating pain, which is why we emphasize that a lot in chronic pain, because we know that the injury itself isn't necessarily there. We can't fix the injury so much. What we can perhaps work on is the role of the brain in suppressing those messages coming from the spinal cord. So when someone's having chronic pain, where are the areas that you're highlighting? Like, do you go to the brain or do you go to the bottom of the spine? How can you manage that? If it's gone a bit haywire, how can you manage that? The classical approach is to take a, what we call a biopsychosocial approach to managing pain because it's recognising that there is a, usually a biological element to pain. So by biological, I mean something physical, something physico-chemical. So for example, that thorn that was there three months ago or injury or inflammation in the case of arthritis, etc. But actually, we recognise that psychosocial influences, people's beliefs and religion and culture and anxieties, concerns, etc., all those other things have an impact on the pain. So it's a sort of three-pronged approach. It's about addressing the biology of it. So let's take back pain. What's the cause of the back pain? Let's do an MRI scan to see if there are any structural things that are driving the pain. Are there any discs prolapse? Are the joints arthritic? Is there something else there that's generating this pain? Don't just assume that this is an alarm signal on its own. And then there's a psychosocial, which is looking at the patient, looking at the context, uh, trying to understand what their fears and anxieties are, trying to understand how pain impacts their life and how we can try and restore function, even if we can't, at the same time, in parallel, remove the pain. Uh, so that's a kind of approach that we take. So it's not as simple as just keep on taking these meds and that will just stop you feeling the pain. It's not as simple as that. It isn't as simple as that. Probably the reason it isn't as simple as that is because meds are not that successful. I do wonder if there was, you know, this magic wand treatment, if there was, an, uh, you know, some painkiller that actually completely removed pain and a painkiller that you didn't become desensitised to over time, whether that would in itself be satisfactory. But that medication doesn't exist, which is why we emphasise the biopsychosocial. And I guess it's fair to say that a proportion of patients who come and see us in the pain clinic find that quite difficult to grasp because the low-hanging fruit, I guess, 
when you've got any chronic illness is to say, well, I want to just go back to how I was before. You know, why, why do I have to deal with this? I, I, I don't want to have to live with it. I want it to go away. Why can't you just make it go away? But really, that's very rare in pain medicine. Actually, that's very rare in, in all of medicine. We almost never cure things in any branch of medicine. If you think about diabetes, if you think about high blood pressure, heart disease, we don't take people's diabetes away. We give them insulin, we give them tablets. We also tell them they have to watch what they eat. They have to exercise a certain amount every day. They would probably have kidney disease. They will probably have numbness and pins and needles in their hands at a certain point, no matter how careful they are. They are going to have to live with this diagnosis of diabetes to some extent, medication is going to help, but to a greater extent, lifestyle adjustment, acceptance, working around it, and trying to maintain all those other things they you know, felt they'd have to give up is a vital part of, of living better with diabetes, and it's exactly the same with pain. It must be really difficult, and I guess this is where you studying to be a psychiatrist really comes in. It must be so difficult for the patient who's come in and so for example I come in I've got bad back I've got excruciating pain lower back and they hear you know we see no inflammation we've looked at the area there is no injury what kind of states do do patients come in in the pain clinic specialized pain clinics invariably we see people sort of at the end of a long line of other people they'll have seen their GP they'll have talked about their symptoms for a long time a lot of them will have felt disbelieved and uh, not validated in in their concerns and their anxieties. They will invariably have seen orthopaedic specialists, spinal specialists, perhaps rheumatologists, physiotherapists before they come and see us. And all these interactions, for a proportion of people, they're they're very successful. But the people who end up coming to us are those people who, who haven't really been satisfied with the treatments that were offered to them. And there is a great sense of, I've been told this is very much in my mind. I've been told I've just got to live with it. Even after interactions with a pain clinic, I sometimes see patients who've been to other pain services and sometimes patients leave my clinic and say, if you're telling me I've just got to live with it, that's, you know, that's very frustrating for me. So I think learning a language that is able to hone in on what the patient understands and try and explain to them what we're saying. I'm actually not saying there's nothing I can do. I am saying to you, as much as I'm saying to everybody else, you will have to learn to live with it because everybody has to learn to live with everything. Even growing older, you're going to have to learn to live with it. But at the same time, there may be, just because I can't see inflammation here, there may be something else going on that's driving your pain. And I will try my best to work that out. I'm also acutely aware that the technology we have today isn't ideal. I mean, we rely very heavily on MRI scans and CT scans and nerve conduction studies. But, you know, it's a fallacy to assume that it's the be all and end all. They don't see through people. We take back pain, which is, you know, a great proportion of what we see. We scan most people lying down. That's very different from their day to day activity. If somebody has pain when they're walking around or getting out of a chair, it's not necessarily going to come up on an MRI scan. So I am, again, open-minded to the possibility that science is to an extent failing people. You know, I can't say categorically there is nothing going on. What I can say, though, is that based on the available evidence or based on the techniques that we have, I'm not able to offer specific treatments or I am able to offer specific treatments. That's really the greatest utility of of things like an MRI scan. So that's interesting. So did I hear you say that, I don't know if you used the word majority, but that a lot of people come in with back pain. 
Back pain is one of those, you know, almost 99% of people in the world will have an episode of back pain at some point in their life. And 95% of those people will recover. For some reason, at least 5% of people don't recover. And that actually forms a, a large population of medical patients, if you can imagine, you know, given that pretty much everybody in the world experiences it. Back pain, neck pain is probably the most, single most common symptoms that people come to pain clinics for either back pain just in the back or back pain with what we call sciatica or radicular symptoms. So that's when pain goes down the leg. And part of my job as a doctor in a multidisciplinary pain clinic, I should emphasize that it's not just me in a pain clinic. There are doctors, there are specialist nurses, there are psychologists, there are physiotherapists, and each one of us contributes to the management of patients. What I see my job as a doctor is the medical side, is listening to the patient, trying to work out if, if there is anything generating the pain, ongoing generating the pain, ordering the necessary investigations as required, discussing medications, and then where it's appropriate, offering interventions, physical interventions. So uh, in the case of back pain, there might be spinal injections, cortisone injections, nerve root injections, which for a subset of patients are enormously helpful, but are not always helpful and certainly never really fix things. You know, it's at best a short-term solution to a chronic problem. When someone has a cortisone injection... And let's say it works, let's say it lasts for a month. What do they do? Have one every month for the rest of their life? Not really, not ideally. There are reasonable reasons not to offer people regular cortisone injections that are medical, but also pragmatic. You literally could not, even if there was no consequence to doing the injections. But also the injections invariably happen with x-rays, so there's exposure to radiation. There's a needle, in the case of back injections, there's a needle going near your spine, so that at every point there's a risk of damaging the nerves, which could be permanent. And actually, ultimately, you are finding an area of the back that is already angry and sticking a needle into it. And there is a small possibility that you're just going to make it angrier than it was before, permanently angrier than it was before. And also steroids, you know, they, it's not great to have steroids in the body. They do cause systemic effects. So they affect lots of other parts of the body. They put your blood pressure up. They affect your skin. They affect your hormones. They affect your fertility. They affect your weight. They affect your blood sugar. I'm not saying that the doses we use... That happens to a significant degree, but certainly if you were going to repeat it over and over again, there would be consequences. So for a variety of reasons, part of which are health-related, but part of which are pragmatic, we don't offer the injections on a repeated basis. Hold your horses. There's a quick interruption. You're going to have a listen to these messages, and we'll be back very shortly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Is it ever the case that perhaps the pain might diminish by a talking therapy or there could be something that is emotionally, there's an emotional block and then there needs to be some sort of release. The body's not 
letting go because of some trauma or something like does that happen yeah so the I guess what is hard for me is being able to attribute the causality in that circumstances for sure there is a role for psychological approaches to pain for sure what the patient believes anxieties culture all that stuff impacts on the sensation of pain so even outside of chronic pain I mean on a very basic level you go to the gym right and you wake up the next day and your body's sore and you feel good about yourself, don't you? You kind of pat yourself on the back. This is the product of me exercising. This is what I wanted. This is a great experience. And you carry on with your day-to-day practice. If you wake up and you haven't gone to the gym and you've got a sore throat and your body's sore, you assume you've got some horrible viral illness. You lay in bed. It's exactly the same physiology in the muscles. It's exactly the same message that's going to the brain. But your context and your understanding and your belief of what's going on makes the sensation very, very different. It takes it from being a pleasant, I'm satisfied, I'm going to carry on with my life, to actually I feel really, really horrible, I'm very upset, I'm very sad. And extrapolate that to chronicity, so for life. What's going on? Is this something the doctors have missed out? Have I got some cancer? My grandparents had arthritis and nobody found that out. Or, you know, all of this is in the context of don't have a house and my partner's going to leave me because I'm, I'm in pain or I'm going to lose my job or I have lost my job and all those emotions that are tied into it. For sure, addressing those emotions and those anxieties and those beliefs to some extent is going to have an impact on the person's well-being. And when you feel better, invariably pain is less bothersome. So if you cut your finger and you were sitting in a glorious sunny beach, you would probably be less bothered by that cut finger than if you were at work or if you were stressed or you know, you'd heard some bad news, you'd be fixated on it a bit more. So psychological approaches to pain, I can't say that the psychological approach somehow necessarily completely takes away the pain signals, but it generally does help people feel better and understand better. And that has a profound impact on people's well-being and therefore their pain. Psychology can absolutely drive and perpetuate pain and social circumstances. Social circumstances and, you know, being depressed or serious trauma can absolutely and utterly trigger symptoms, but also propagate them and make them persistent. And, you know, it is very, very common with pain, you know, very common if you look back you'll invariably find something traumatic around the time that symptoms started. Now, is that because there's something physiological going on or is there just a memory for the patient? You know, they this is a horrible thing that they've got this bias towards remembering. Yes, I do remember that was when my father died. That was when I was abused. That was when I was thrown out of work. You know, they invariably, that story, if you ask for it specifically, that story comes out. But it's hard to know how much it's the initiator or how much it's a driver or really a consequence of, of pain. I see. Yes, I understand. You see, yes. I suppose I'm thinking about it because, I mean, I'm a big fan of treating the body and this is how I'm relating to chronic pain. And I'm going to do this with a caveat to anyone who's listening who lives with chronic pain. I don't live in chronic pain, so I don't know what that's like. But this is what's coming up for me is when I think of when I got PTSD, my nervous system just suddenly seemed to fire off and I got quite hypervigilant. And it's been eight, nine years and I've kind of learned to live with it. And I've done everything. I went to flipping Chicago twice. I had a Stalingate block injection you know there's some doctor in Chicago because I was like I don't freaking sort this out this is hell on earth you know and I'm a lot better my disassociation is a lot better but I live with a sort of something in my body a jumpiness that I don't know if I'll ever get back on top of and it makes life difficult and yet I work away every week at it and also I do all these other things that have taken me from not being able to leave the house 
and not knowing, recognising my face, to now kind of like doing pretty good. But I still live with a very jumpy nervous system. You know, still walking the dog every day is tough, but I don't dwell on it like I used to. So that's how I'm kind of relating to it. I don't know if it's gone, but it's probably gone down from an eight to a four with everything else that I've done around it. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting analogy, actually, Will, you know, what you're describing. There are obviously lots of parallels as well with pain. You know, it's a different sensation. I think I'm just, I guess, I'm mindful of the idea of suggesting, you know, propagating this idea that all chronic pain patients are mad and it's all in their mind or it's all driven by their mind. And Oh my gosh, no. Right, so I'm very careful, and with patient interactions as well, I'm very careful of the terminology I use because I, for me, it's not about, has this come from the mind? It's about saying, listen, all pain, however normal you like it to be or however conventional it is, is somehow related to what is going on in your brain. It's a fact. Yeah. You know, if I cut my finger, it is driven by the brain. And so there is definitely some strong association with chronic pain with what's going on in the brain. That's why we recommend psychology, not because we don't believe you or because you think we have to kind of spirit the pain away, but because it is just so inherently linked in with your mood and with the way you think and the psychological approaches therefore can be helpful. Yeah, that makes sense to me because it seems like a a good response, a a necessary response. And I would imagine that it must have been dreadful for people that probably being told they're making it up or, or there's nothing wrong, there's nothing there. Or, you know, it's all coming from you. So, yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying about that. And the other thing to say is that, I, again, this is where I feel that we need to be honest. We don't have all the answers. And pain, broadly speaking, divided into acute and chronic. It's also divided into chronic primary or secondary. So secondary chronic pain is pain that is as a result of something, you know, physical, if you like. So you've had a slipped disc, it's caused pressing on your nerve. It's your pain is secondary to this physical thing that's there, which may not be there anymore. So there may be some some alarm bell that's still going off. But, you know, there, there is some biomechanical explanation for it. But a lot of the pain we see is primary. So it's something where the driving factors are felt to be a little bit more psychosocial than they are biological. I'm not saying there's no biology there. So things like fibromyalgia, chronic widespread pain, IBS, migraine, certain types of neurological pain all fit into these categories. You know, they're categories where we can't actually trace it back to something that we can take or treat. It does not mean, though, that actually there isn't something going on that we haven't, you know, picked it out. And probably if you took the spines of people with fibromyalgia or IBS and you took little slices of them and you analysed the chemicals that go on in their spines, it would almost certainly be different from people who don't experience chronic primary pain, that their sensitivity to messages from the outside world, like you were saying, their hypervigilance of the spine is yeah. almost certainly going to be dysfunctional or altered. So, so there's something going on in the nervous system that is driving these messages and the degree to which that brain is responsible for it, who knows, but certainly the brain may play a part in being able to modulate it in chronic patients. And they are all very tricky things to treat from a medical perspective, certainly from a biological side of things. If we take fibromyalgia, there was recent guidance, national guidance on the management of it. And it essentially said all the treatments that doctors have been using for the past 10 years don't really work. We shouldn't really be giving any of the tablets we've been giving for the past 10 years to patients because in general populations, they seem, don't seem to be effective. Where are we at with the sort of latest on treating chronic pain. I mean, you mentioned that they just said about stuff used for fibromyalgia for the last 10 years. And is there any new groundbreaking thoughts or treatments? So I guess the two sort of hot, sexy topics in pain at the moment, from the medical side of things, the biological side of things, I can't say I'm an authority on the psychological approaches or the self-management approaches, are cannabis for pain and also neuromodulation. Those are probably the two most kind of exciting things. 
So cannabis, you know, has been around for thousands of years, been used actually for pain and anesthesia for thousands of years. You know, second century AD, Chinese doctors were using it for anesthetics, primitive anesthetics, you know, putting us really to shame. It was used in childbirth, labor pains in the Middle East. Queen Victoria apparently was having menstrual cycles and was using cannabis extracts for the pain. So it's been around for ages and, and for moralistic reasons, it, it fell out of favor until the 1980s when the, the target receptors were found. And, and the target receptors for cannabis occur at almost every point in the pain pathway. So remember that description I had before about the, the prehistoric person, inflammation, the nerve talks to another nerve and the spine talks to parts in the brain, comes back to the spine. At every point along that pathway, cannabis receptors are found in quite high densities. It's interesting. So it makes you wow. wonder how integral is the endocannabinoid system, the naturally occurring cannabinoid system in pain. And actually in animals, there is enormous amounts of evidence that cannabis is central to pain processing. So if you give cannabis by flower or by edible or by oil or by topical or injected into the spine of an animal, in almost every circumstance, in almost every study, it's resulted in pain relief. So there was a lot of hope and aspiration for cannabis-based treatments being the panacea of pain, because it's obviously something that's fairly readable, readily available, relatively ostensibly in the grand scheme of things, well tolerated. But actually, frustratingly, the studies that look at human subjects haven't been so compelling. And there's, you know, lots of reasons why that might be the case. But so far, it hasn't been as profoundly effective in humans with chronic pain as it has in, in the animal models. But it's possible that we're not the science is, is, is limited and we're not really looking at the right populations of people and perhaps we're not even asking the right questions. So there may be a role for cannabis-based treatments in the future, but it's a huge industry. It's a really big earning industry as well. So it, there's a big dilemma in pain medicine between those people who feel that actually we should be embracing things like cannabinoids, they're much better than the existing treatments, and those people who are more conservative who have huge concerns about cannabinoids because they've seen what happened with opioids in the, in the United States and to some extent in Europe and the UK. And they've got concerns that something that's so sort of financially driven is going to have a similar, similar effect in the UK. Yeah, gosh, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Which is a fascinating one, I have to say. And you mentioned... Neuromodulation. So, so neuromodulation literally means you are interfering with the, with the neurological messages. So it all goes back to the principles, doesn't it? Go back to that pathway from the, from the skin where the thorn steps to the brain. It's electrical, mostly it's electrical with some chemical points along the way where the, where the nerves talk to each other. And the idea is that actually if you can interrupt that electrical message on the way to the brain, then the brain feels it less. And actually, that's the principle of everything that we do. So the medication we give, the idea is that you're trying to interrupt that message as it goes to the brain. Even the psychology that we give, the idea is that you're trying to drive messages from the brain down to the spinal cord to reduce the ones that go up. But the principle of electrical neuromodulation is that you put implants into this very close to the spine and you send electrical energy into the spine, into the parts of the spine that are responsible for conveying those messages to the brain. And in patients where there are evidences that it works, and it by no means is it all pain patients, it's actually a very small population of pain patients, you can minimise the amount of pain they feel by continuously or intermittently interrupting these messages. I think it's such a fascinating area. I guess my final thing is, if people are listening who are in chronic pain, what would you say to them? They need to understand, firstly, that it's incredibly common. So 
my PhD looked at the prevalence of chronic pain and we found in 2016 that between a third and a half of the adult population of the UK experienced chronic pain. So, you know, you don't have pain, but actually, you know, one in three of us do have pain, if not more of that. And the older you are, the more likely you are to have pain. So you're not alone, is the first thing to say. And there are an enormous amount of resources available where the focus is on educating patients and understanding pain, the impact of pain, but also helping people self-manage. And I would say, absolutely, if you're struggling or suffering with pain, go and get medical attention, go and see if there's anything that can be done to minimize your pain. But also, as with all chronic conditions, understand that part of that care will be your own effort in helping to minimize the impact of pain on your life. And for a lot of people, there is a parallel stream where you're trying to bring down pain, but there's another parallel stream that says, okay, you tell me that you've stopped having sex, you've stopped going to work, you've stopped picking up your children, your grandchildren, you've stopped walking your dog, you've stopped leaving home, you've stopped going out because you've got pain. I understand why that's the case, but is it conceivable that even if we can't take pain away fully with injections and medications and tablets and neuromodulators and cannabis and all that stuff, is it conceivable that we can help you try and do some of those things even if you have pain, even if you can't predict your pain? And wouldn't that be good? You know, wouldn't that be better than carrying on with the same amount of pain and not doing all of those things? Mm. So it's about opening, opening your mind to the idea that actually that conversation around living better with pain shouldn't be about being abandoned or feeling abandoned. It's really about supporting you in the way that I wish we would do with all branches of medicine. It's amazing. I have a feeling that I'm going to come away from our talk with a lot more questions. I mean, it's actually blowing my mind. The whole thing has blown my mind. And I'm so pleased that there are people like you who are around to help others because it must be so difficult. But it's so nice to hear you talk about it, you know, so passionately. Cheers. It's so nice to get to have interest in it because my bugbear is the fact that a third of the population, half the population have pain. Okay, not disabling pain, but half the population have chronic pain. It is the single most expensive medical condition ever. And the list of most disabling conditions in the world, five pain conditions feature in the top 10. In the US, it costs more than cancer, heart disease and diabetes combined. And yet there just isn't as much interest in it because it doesn't kill, I guess. People are interested in it. But oddly enough, even the medical community isn't really interested in it. Trying to do research in pain is Nobody is interested in funding it. Maybe in a way that sort of irony is the fact that so many people have it sometimes just normalizes it. You know, actually, when my paper came out, there was part of the pain community that was saying, you can't publish it. You can't publish that a third of the population have, have pain because they'll shut us down completely because they'll be like, oh my God, we can't, we don't want to think about anything that's going to apply to a third of the population that's far too expensive, that's far too overwhelming. The other problem is that it's not so easily measurable. So diabetes is quite easily, you take a blood sugar and you've got a value and you can attribute without judgment, some analysis of that value, it's bad diabetes, or it's mild diabetes, or it's moderate diabetes, you know, there's no offense in that statement, whereas actually pain, there is no, absolutely no real reliable marker for measuring whether or not somebody has pain, or doesn't have pain. And that makes it very, very untidy, doesn't it? As a sort of, it just doesn't make it neat in that, in the way that diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and cancer and all those other things, those other things are, it really muddies the waters. And you mentioned, you know, a few times sort of sociocultural and, you know, actually when I think about it, when you're younger, you know, you see a child fall over and you might even get a parent that tells them to stop crying and you think, God, they've scraped their knee, they're in pain. So I wonder if we have this sort of odd relationship with it. There's a friend of mine and we went out a while ago 
and he, 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 he was very tense around people. And uh, anyway, and I just thought something was up and he was being a bit off with people. And long story cut short, I said to him the next day, because I've done a lot of therapy, I was like, I really want to bring this up because I found your behaviour interesting. And I want to know if you're okay, is my first question. And the person said to me, I live in pain a lot of the time. And they didn't even tell me. He has osteoarthritis. Uh, and I'm nervous about, you know, being banged into or something. I said, well, I'm so pleased you've told me. But it was so interesting that he didn't want to tell me. Mm. You know, because he's just trying to sort of get on, I guess. Yeah, it's really difficult because also there's these problematic expectations of people who've got pain. This idea that you have two choices. Either you get on with it and then people don't, are not sensitive to you when you bring it up because you bring it up at times when you don't want to go to work and they're like, oh, suddenly the pain is an issue. You were dancing two days ago. So either you kind of have to show it all the time so for it to be legitimate when it really bothers you or you have to hide it and then are not believed. So this this sort of bizarre paradox for people that makes it very, very frustrating for them. Yeah, That's a very, very good point. I think a lot of people will relate to that. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Will. It's been great to be here and thank you for taking time to listen to me ramble. Well, Dr. Alan Fires. Really, really fascinating. And he's obviously very passionate about it. And that's really nice to hear. And gosh, it must be difficult, honestly. I think I'm going to think about this conversation as much as I did thinking about the conversation with Dr Kang about narcissists. It's really stayed with me because it's something I really knew little about. So if you live with chronic pain, have a look at the links in the show notes because Dr Alan gave us some useful links for resources and things like that. Or just have a Google British Pain Society. They've got a whole list of resources there. You have sent messages. So here's an email. Chronic pain is certainly a huge topic and one I have vast experience in. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis since I was 16, 30 years later and over 50 surgeries. I'm finally in a better place mentally and physically. I've been on opioids for 20 years and slowly weaned myself off over two years. And now, although I'm completely off them, my pain hasn't actually increased. That's amazing. I've really struggled mentally living with pain and disability 24 hours a day for this long there just aren't words to adequately describe your pain to anyone and that has left me feeling quite isolated at times. Friends and family are amazing support but still it's such a personal experience. I find when my pain levels reduce from high to an acceptable place my mind becomes more active, my brain then has the capacity to think more deeply into the emotional impact of my limitations. Thankfully I've had some wonderful therapy this past year that has brought me to a place of acceptance that I never felt before. I needed to grieve for the life I may have had and always felt guilty about that in the past. And I found a love for writing poetry again. Uh, Once again, thank you for the amazing work you're doing. That's a very sweet message. Thank you. This is from Instagram. Hi Will, just listened to the episode on eating disorders. I had anorexia in my late teens, early 20s and towards the end, when I knew I had to get out of it, I had this recurring dream that I had a huge cavernous hole at the back of my head and I'd wake up scared to touch it with pain there. Just listening to the podcast and the fact that the brain shrinks with food restriction makes me think that I was seeing what was happening really bonkers and interesting. Thanks for the good work, and I hope that wasn't too graphic and disturbing to share. No, it wasn't. Also from Instagram, hello Will and team, I would love for you to do an episode on an emotionally unstable personality disorder. I think your voice and take on it would be very insightful and interesting to listen to. Yes, that's a good one. We shall put that onto the list. Love recommendations. And 
This is from Facebook. Hi Will, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia in 2019. I had rheumatism as a child and they thought the two were linked. When lockdown hit, they had to hold online pain management clinics. I found Tai Chi helpful to ease the pain. Changing my diet has helped too since cutting out bread and potatoes. I'm not in as much pain as I was. That's interesting. Sugar seems to trigger a flare-up. I take ibuprofen to ease the pain, the prescribed codeine, but it is too strong for me and makes me feel dizzy. An afternoon nap also eases the pain. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who continues to get in touch. You can email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at The Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at The Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Lots of love. Bye. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.